he's a, he's a, he's a reasonable, realistic person. So, so maybe Jesus' command for us to forgive, like he describes, really only applies to relatively minor sins, minor offenses. You know, stuff like you said you were going to come to my house for dinner, but then you didn't show up. And I fixed this outrageously awesome meal, and, and you just didn't come. Or, or you borrowed my, uh, my, my collection of Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Western DVDs and never gave them back. Or, like, I, I reply to your text messages in, like, two minutes whenever you send me one. But, but, but I sent you this really thoughtful and encouraging text message, like, two days ago, and you still haven't replied. Or let's get closer to home. You invited a, people, a bunch of people over to your house for an impromptu dinner, but you didn't invite me. And I've been friends with you longer than any of those people that you actually invited. Sure is quiet in here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably big enough to forgive those offenses, even if they all happen in the same day by the same person, maybe. But Jesus didn't make any distinctions. Major and minor offenses were not in his vocabulary here. By the same person, Jesus didn't say anything about that. All in the same day, Jesus didn't say anything about that. Those weren't in his vocabulary either. Jesus, the God-man, the one who forgives the people who are publicly humiliating him, torturing him, executing him, spitting on him, that Jesus clearly has some pretty lofty expectations whenever it comes to matters of forgiveness. As he is hanging on the cross in Luke 23. He said, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. Frankly, y'all, when what Jesus says about unlimited forgiveness, it just doesn't sit well with me. And many of the human tendencies that I have about forgiveness, it doesn't sit well with a lot of people. It's not just me. I'll cut myself some slack. There's people here that struggle with forgiveness. When it comes to matters of forgiveness, we all like to decide when forgiveness really matters. Because we've, we've learned things in life, right? Y'all help me out with this one. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, Oh, man, y'all got that one. See, we've learned some things about forgiveness. Or how about this one? Three strikes and you're out. Oscar Wilde said, always forgive your enemies because nothing annoys them so much. Thomas Zaz said, the stupid neither forgive nor forget. The naive forgive and forget the wise forgive, but do not ever forget. We have some strange ideas about forgiveness. One boy said, I used to pray every night for God to give me a new bicycle. Then I realized God doesn't work this way. So I went out and stole a bicycle, and now I pray every night for him to forgive me. It, it doesn't work that way, y'all. We've got, we've got some strange ideas about forgiveness. 
Well, guess what, Grace Church? So does Jesus. Let's get to it. I want to talk to you about the general view of forgiveness versus the Jesus view. And this might shock you, but forgiveness is not just a Christian phenomenon. Forgiving someone who has hurt you doesn't somehow get you this special platinum level Jesus credit to use in heaven. Even the secular world recognizes the value of forgiveness. In recent years, psychologists have done quite a bit of research into the real and the perceived benefits of forgiveness. One writer, Adam Cohen, in his article, Research on the Science of Forgiveness in 2004, found that people who forgive report improved qualities of relationships. And people who forgive report higher commitment to relationships as opposed to people who refuse to forgive. Now, that sounds common sense, but they did the research. There's data to back it up. Another study reported in Psychological Science showed that a sustained pattern of unforgiveness over time can actually result in poorer physical health. So the expert general view is that forgiveness is good for us. I just want to point out that the little bit of secular research that I mentioned here tonight promotes that forgiveness is all about the personal benefit. You do it because it's good for you. It's, that's me-centered forgiveness. Just a thought, and I might be overgeneralizing here, but I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind either. Forgiveness is good for you, but we don't need research to tell us that. More often than not, y'all, the, the real dilemma that we experience in the general view of forgiveness isn't whether we should forgive or whether we should not forgive. Rather, our dilemma is what to forgive and how often. So Peter's question to Jesus in our text highlights this. Jesus, how many times shall I forgive? It's not a bad question. And it's not a naive question either. I like Peter. Peter, Peter's always willing to say out loud what everybody else is thinking. I feel a certain kinship with him as a result of that. And he's showing us what's in his heart. He said, I know you told us to forgive, Lord, and, and I want to obey, but I also want to know how far you expect me to go. In other words, when is it legitimate for me to stop forgiving? Jesus, I, I want you to tell me, when have I fulfilled the forgiveness requirement? There's seriously heavy vestiges of Old Testament law wrapped up in this question about how many times do I need to forgive. Peter wants to know, Jesus, if forgiveness is mandatory, then I want to know what I must do and exactly when am I off the hook. When are you going to look at me and say, okay, Peter, they've wronged you this many times, you're done. You don't have to forgive them anymore. When does that happen, Jesus? And so Jesus absolutely wrecks Peter's question. And his answer to Peter's question is this story from the rest of Matthew that we're about to read. But what it shows us is that forgiveness isn't a mathematical issue. It's a heart issue. 
It's not about the quantity of your forgiveness, and it's not even about the quality of your forgiveness. It's not even about being obedient and meeting regulations. It is about the posture of your heart toward other human beings. So to illustrate his point, Jesus tells a story. Matthew chapter 18, 23 through 35. Jesus said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Okay, so in the Greek, it says 10,000 talents. Now, one talent was worth about 20 years worth of a day laborer's wage. One talent is worth 20 years worth of a day laborer's wages. So this guy owed 20 years worth of day laborer's wages 10,000 times over. So that guy was brought to before the king. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I, I will pay back everything. Okay. Now let's think about how much this guy owes. Just be patient, and I'll pay it back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt. Massive amount of money, $7 billion, and let him go. Verse 28, but when that servant, same guy, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. So in the Greek, it says a hundred denarii. So a denarius, the usual wage for a day's worth of work. So he owed a hundred days worth. That's it. A hundred days worth of minimum wage money. That's what this guy owed. But he grabbed him and began to choke him. One translation says he grabbed him by the throat. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees, listen to the parallel here, and begged him, be patient with me, and I'll pay it back. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, this is Jesus talking. Pay attention, class. Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister or ex-husband or ex-wife, or mother-in-law, or absent father, or addicted mother, or former pastor, or old boss, or former co-worker. Unless you forgive those people from your heart, 
this is what my father's going to do to you. He's talking to disciples. Let me give you three key points about this story. Key point number one, this king, this master, he would have known that this first debt could never be repaid. The only options in this case, y'all, were either judgment or forgiveness. Nothing else. So let, let's start with 100 denarii. We'll start there. Just stay with me while we do a little bit of math. The, the denarius, one day's wage for a typical day labor, day labor. Let's say he works six days a week with the Sabbath day of rest. And then allowing approximately two weeks for various Jewish holidays, the typical laborer would work 50 weeks of the year and earned an annual wage of 300 denarii. That's 50 weeks times six days. So 100 denarii then was one-third of a year's salary or four months' worth of wages. Now suppose that you continue to work as a day laborer earning 300 denarii each year. After 20 years, 20 years of such labor, you would have earned 6,000 denarii. And at this point, the king would say to his debtor, congratulations. You have worked for 20 years and have now earned 6,000 denarii. That's enough for you to pay back one talent. You only have 9,999 more to go. So if it takes 20 years to earn one talent, then repaying 10,000 talents would require working 200,000 years. So how absurd for the servant to beg for mercy and tell the king, I'll pay back everything. There's no way. There are only two options. Judgment or forgiveness. And the king chose outrageous forgiveness. Now as awesome as that is, key point number two. The primary point of the story isn't the king's outrageous forgiveness. But rather... It's the deep insensitivity to that mercy on the part of the servant. He was forgiven a debt many, many, many times more than what he was owed. So we would expect someone who had been forgiven. Oh, I am sneaking up on you so good right now. We would expect someone who has been forgiven so much to easily forgive someone else of so little. Yet he grabs his fellow servant by the throat and demands, demands his due. Well, now pay attention. He was due payment by the letter of the law. He was legally within his bounds to demand payment. He was owed something and it was his right legally to collect it but even though this second servant uses the exact same words the exact same plea that he himself had used earlier when he was before the king the forgiven servant acts out of retribution 
and justice and the letter of the law. And that's what makes this story so shocking to us. Because we don't get this, guys. Like, man, how, how could you? How could you treat somebody else that way that owed you just such a little amount and, and the king forgave you so much? How could you, how could you be like that? Key point number three. The forgiven servant behaves as if he has no concept or experience of forgiveness. Yet he has just experienced forgiveness in its highest form. And when the king hears of how his mercy has gone unappreciated, he calls the servant evil. In the Greek, it's actually, it actually translates, you servant of Belial. Well, that's not good. Belial, that's, that's New Testament Greek language for Satan. You're a servant of Satan. Well, what made him evil in the king's sight? Oh, it's about to get sticky because the king just forgave him. And now he's calling him evil. What made him evil in the king's sight? What made him a servant of Satan as far as the king was concerned? Well, here it is. Not forgiving little when he had been forgiven much. Acting as if he has no concept of forgiveness whenever he has had a very real and personal experience with a deep, amazing, impossible forgiveness. That's what makes him evil in the king's eyes. Taking forgiveness when it's offered, but not extending forgiveness when it's needed. Now, y'all hold up because there's a reality check coming, and this is like reality check one of two. Y'all, I don't want you to make a mistake about this. Jesus is telling this story about us. You and me. Usins. That's who this story is about. We are the players in this tale. Jesus is the king. And we are the first servant. Forgiven so much. Forgiven $7 billion worth of debt. And those who have wounded us, betrayed us, hurt us, they are the second servant. The ones who are in need of a single drop of forgiveness from the ocean of grace that we swim in daily. Here's the point of the story. Jesus fully expects his forgiveness toward us to produce in us forgiveness toward others. Let me put the emphasis on a different syllable. Jesus, your Savior, the King of Kings, fully expects that the forgiveness that He has shown to us will produce in us forgiveness to others who have wounded us and hurt us. Did y'all get it that time? Like that first servant, our own willingness to forgive is the surest indicator there is of our knowledge and experience of forgiveness. 
and of how much we really value his forgiveness in our lives. Say it this way. You want to know how much you value forgiveness? Keep track of how much you forgive others. You want to know how much you appreciate what he's forgiven you of? Keep track of what you've forgiven others. I told you y'all were going to have so much fun tonight and love me by the time this was done. I can feel the love right now. Palatable. The principal reason why I am not prepared to forgive 70 times 7 is that I have no real sense of what's been forgiven me. I mean, don't y'all think about this with me. Don't we all choose to excuse and explain and condone and reason away our own actions? When it comes to matters of forgiveness, don't we prefer to choose when forgiveness really matters? We have no sense of our own sin. We have no sense of the number and depth of our offenses. We are angry about the wrongs, legitimate wrongs. I'm not saying that they're invalid. We're angry about the wrongs that have been done against us as if we ourselves are innocent of any wrongdoing. In our own little worlds, we are always the victim. Noble, righteous martyrs with the purest of intentions. We are misunderstood. We are mistreated. Well, guess what, Flash? In their little world, in that person that hurt you, in, in their world, they are the victim. And in their world, they are the noble and righteous and misunderstood one. And you are the wound-causing jerk who needs to repent. So now it's time for reality check number two. The gospel story tells us that we have been forgiven so much more than we can even begin to imagine. But do we really imagine that any sin com someone commits against us is somehow more appalling and offensive than our own personal sin against God? I'm going to ask that question again. Do we really imagine that any sin someone commits against us is somehow more appalling or offensive than our own personal sin against God. And I'm not, I'm not minimizing or excusing the wrong actions of others. Please understand me, I am not. People can commit horrendous acts that leave lifelong scars. There are some horror stories here in this room tonight. I'm not minimizing that. Sin matters, and it matters to God. And because sin matters, sin must be dealt with. But God will deal with sin and offenses in a way that is a whole lot wiser and way more effective than I can possibly accomplish by holding a grudge. It's not my call. Okay, class, let's exercise together. I want you to take your hand like this. I want you to place it on your chest. It's not my call. Repeat after me. It's not my call. 
Not my circus, not my monkeys. It's not my responsibility to deal with their offense. It's not my responsibility to deal with their sin. That responsibility is wholly, completely, and utterly God's responsibility. Refusing to forgive, holding a grudge, wallowing in bitterness, nurturing hatred, feeling justified in my persistent anger, those are all indicators of a heart that is indifferent to the Savior who suffered and died for my sin. Yes, sin has a cost. Someone has to pay for it. Jesus paid for mine. And I'm covered and forgiven. But Jesus also paid for theirs. And if Jesus paid the penalty for their offenses the same way that he paid the penalty for mine, then who am I to hold on to what they did as if my claim to their offense is somehow more valid than God's? The last time I checked... Their sins put Jesus on the cross, not me. And if he forgave it, who am I to hold on to it? When I refuse, and it is a choice, when I refuse to forgive, I'm saying that the cross isn't adequate for the wrong that was done to me. Christ's death isn't sufficient for the offense done to me. It's not enough. Oh, his sacrifice on Calvary is enough to cover my sin, just not theirs. His sacrifice, his blood's enough to cover my wrongs and my offenses, but not theirs. Hits a little different when you put it like that, doesn't it? Folks, the debt of sin will be paid in one of two places, either at the cross on Calvary or at the throne of judgment. When I choose not to forgive, I'm trying to demand double payment on a debt that wasn't mine to collect in the first place. However, when we choose to forgive, I'm going to let y'all feel better in just a minute. Just hang with me, okay? I know it's tough. It's going to get better. But when we choose to forgive, we're saying that we trust God not only with our own sin, but we also trust him with the sins that have been done to us. With the hurts that have been done to us. We cho- we're, we're choosing to trust him with the offenses that have been done to us. That. That's trust in the gospel right there, folks. That's that's faith in God and his plan and his purpose. That's real life Christianity. You know, as as much as I would like to, uh, I am so far, at least at this point in my life, I am utterly incapable of changing anything in the past. Man, there's some stuff I would really like to go back and redo. Some, some stuff I would like to just undo, but I can't. But I can do something about the present. 
And since I can make choices and act now, then I can affect the future. And I can choose to live in forgiveness. As the forgiven, all of us, we can be forgivers if we choose to. Unforgiveness certainly seems like an attractive option, though, sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes it just makes my flesh feel better to remain angry and bitter and cold and distant. Is that too transparent? Some of y'all the same way. But in forgiving 70 times 7, we are being no more and no less than who we really are, the beneficiaries of God's forgiveness. Forgiving 70 times 7, just like every other gospel requirement, it's not, it's not about following the law. It's about following Jesus. Which would you rather? Grace in the gospel? Or Old Testament law. Think about that one long and hard before you answer. I'm coming down on grace in the gospel. Which means he expects me to forgive. We're going to wrap this up. And this is where I told you I'm going to make you feel better. It's not an easy story. But what a beautiful illustration. In, uh, in his book, Rumor of Another World, Philip Yancey describes something absolutely amazing that happened during the Truth and Reconciliation hearings in South Africa. In the days immediately following the end of apartheid in South Africa in the early 1990s, there were several trials and hearings. And a white policeman, man, this is so culturally relevant right now, but a white policeman named Vanderbroek recounted how he and some other police officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned his body. They admitted and described how they had turned the boy's body on a fire like a piece of meat in order to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, the same policeman, Vanderbroek, went back to the same house and seized that 18-year-old boy's father and the wife was forced to watch as these policemen bound her husband on a wood pile, poured gasoline over his body, and ignited it. At the hearing, having recounted the horrors, I can't imagine, having recounted these horrors that were done to her family, this now elderly woman who endured such cruelty to her son and husband was asked by a judge, he asked her, what do you want from Mr. Vanderbrock? And she said she wanted Vanderbrock to go to the place where they had burned her husband and gather up his ashes so she could give him a decent burial. And his head down, the former policeman nodded in agreement. And then she said this. Mr. Vanderbrock took all of my family away from me.
but I still have a lot of love to give. So twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto where I live and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrock to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him now so he can know that my forgiveness is real. And the old woman then made her way toward the witness stand to embrace Mr. Vanderbrock, but he had literally fainted, overwhelmed by forgiveness. Jesus told Peter to forgive, not, not seven times, Peter, but 77 times. It's not an option. It's a requirement of the gospel. Grace Church, forgiveness matters. I want to close with this. Are there any Marines in the house? None? What about Army veterans, Navy veterans, Air Force veterans? Brother Don, what branch? Army? Yes, sir. So whenever you signed up for the Army, was there a running requirement in boot camp? Did they change the requirement so you could sign up? Did they say, hey, Don, we really like you, man. We want you to come be a part of our Army Club. But since you don't really want to run all that much, you don't have to do that. All those other guys, they have to run, but you don't have to. Is that how it went? <laughs> So we're reading Crazy Love in pages right now, and Francis Chan, the author of, of the book, he, he talks about how whenever he was in high school, he really wanted to join the Marines. But he never did, because he said every commercial and advertisement I saw from the Marines, they were always running, and I hate to run. And I didn't think they would change the requirement for me. He didn't think he could just roll up in the recruiter's office and say, hey, I want to be a Marine, but I don't want to run. And they would say, sure, Francis, come on in, man. We'll take you. We'll change the requirement just for you. Folks, there is no other type of discipleship. There is no non-forgiveness type of discipleship. There's no form of Christianity where there's no requirement for forgiveness. Are y'all getting this? If we're going to call ourselves Christians... If we're going to call ourselves disciples, if we're going to call ourselves sons and daughters of the king, there's a forgiveness requirement that we cannot get around. It's very real. And he expects us to meet it. Deep breath. This was the introduction. Hopefully at some point I'll have the opportunity to share with you some more practical uh, applications for the things that we've talked about tonight and talk a little bit more about forgiveness and why it really matters. Let's stand tonight. Oh, Jesus, we need your help. We need your help. Because the forgiveness requirement, it does not, it doesn't go away. There's, there's no, um, 
There's no clause that will excuse us. And Lord, you can see our hearts. You know that there have been some, some terrible things done and some deep wounds that are here tonight. Lord, you can see our hearts and you know that some of the things that we're harboring are kind of petty and small. And we know we should have let go of them a long time ago. We just haven't been able to. Lord, I'm going to ask you to do what we cannot do. We cannot transform our own hearts, but you can. That's what the Holy Ghost is for. So, Lord, I pray through the power of your spirit and through an ongoing rich relationship with you, we will find it in ourselves. Something rolls over and changes in our heart that we are able to say, I choose to forgive. Help us to live like you, Lord, and follow your word, all of it, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I'm glad you're here tonight. Turn around and be friendly. Have a good evening. Listen up, listen up.